Okay, where are my people? I'm looking for my people. My people are the littles. Where are my people? Come on up, come on up. All right. Hey, uh, who knows what's happening next weekend? I'd bet none of you. Jesus' birthday and Christmas, all at the same time. That is exactly right. And we get presents. I want you to raise your hands, and I want to hear from two of you what you want for Christmas. Two of you. Yeah, right here. A Nintendo Switch. Yes, that sounds like fun. AR, what do you want? A 3D pen. You know what one of my favorite Christmas presents is? Listen in, spouse of mine. Books. Do you like books? They're one of my favorite things. Do you like books? Yeah. Uh, well, here's the good news. A lot of you aren't going to have school this week, or you'll have a big break, won't you? Or preschool break? Yeah. There is this really cool place. You don't even have to have a present for this, and you can use the books. There's a library over there right by the bathrooms. And there's a kid's nook, and it has all kinds of incredible books that you could read on Christmas break. And some of them are about Jesus and why we celebrate Christmas. So be sure you check that out before you leave today, okay? And you can check book out, books out. Okay, now listen. Who remembers which candles we've already lit for Advent? Which ones? What do they stand for? Yeah. Herschel. Peace, hope, and love. He got all three. Let's give a hand to Herschel. <laughs> Woohoo! All right. Well, this morning, we have the Tidmore family here, and they're going to help us light um, almost the last candle, but not quite. Good morning. We light these Advent candles to celebrate the season of anticipation and preparation. Today we will light the candle of joy, acknowledging the joy that comes in the relationship with Jesus and in the gift that, of life that he offers. We anticipate Christ's return in this season of Advent, and today we honor the joy that he promises as we actively wait. A scripture reading as we light the, the candle. 1 Peter 4.13 but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Philippians 4, 4 through 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. May the joy of Christ be found in you this day. Amen. Thank you. So well done. Well, kiddos, you're going to hear a little bit more about this in your Sunday school class. But before you go, I want to say a blessing over you. So would you hold your hands out like this? It's almost like someone's going to put a present in your hands. Or you can put your hand on your heart like this. Do we have the blessing up on the screen? Perfect. Okay. Let me say this over you. May the Lord give you all curious minds to learn, soft hearts to grow, and ready feet to be like Jesus wherever you go with God's help and grace. May you know how loved you are by God and your church family. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, you can stand up, head straight that way, and your Sunday school leaders will take you to your class. Okay.
Well, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Dave Palmer, and I uh, have the honor of getting to uh, serve with you our ministry to university students here. They just finished finals. There was a, a mid-year commencement on Thursday, and, uh, and here I am preaching this Sunday. Grateful for that. Um, our text this morning is, uh, is a text that uh, tells the story of a surprising, the surprising, curious birth of Jesus and a young, engaged couple uh, really coming into marriage uh, in, a, in a fairly challenging point uh, in way, I would contend. Um, but our, our, our modern minds, I just want to say this as a preface, our modern minds, when we, when we hear this part of Jesus' story, immediately goes to sort of skepticism about the rationality around the virgin birth. And we start spiraling around, well, is it conceivable that um, uh, these sorts of things could happen, you know? Um, and uh, n- never mind the fact that the alternative that's posited to us is that somehow all of this that we experienced just exploded from nothingness and here we are, which seems like it has some challenges as well. But never mind that. I want to point out, and I hope that we can come into this text, perhaps with a little bit of, uh, maybe not freshness, but with some clarity, and, 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 and respond to it in the way that I think that the first, um, re- the, the, the original audience, the first readers heard this text, that it wasn't about sort of like the surprising nature of the virgin birth, but this is a, a, a text all about a king and a kingdom, and how scandalous it is that this king has come in to the world. That's what the sermon will be about today in case you start falling asleep prematurely. And that's what the text is about in case you want to spiral around the virgin birth. And so um, let's, uh, let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to, uh, to guide us this morning in that. So Lord, we submit this time to you. We thank you for your wisdom that is clearly not our wisdom. We thank you that your wisdom um, proves to be true in its fruit and in its goodness. And so we ask that your spirit would speak to us this morning the things that it desires to speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lenny read our uh, Old Testament passage, Isaiah 7. Our New Testament passage this morning comes in the first gospel, or the gospel of Matthew chapter 1, which is in our Bible, the first gospel. Not necessarily chronological, but that doesn't matter. We're starting at verse 18, and it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. So in verse 18... Matthew drops a nuclear bomb that his audience would have immediately responded to. Matthew is claiming that Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is the one true king of Israel. Do you see how that's quite a bomb to just drop? His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had conspired this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Now, 
right before this passage, Matthew offers the genealogy of Jesus and importantly anchors King David in the middle of the genealogy. King David is in the line of the hope of the Messiah. And so when the angel addresses Joseph as son of David in line of, the tr- of, of King David, um, he, he's saying something profound about the kingdom and the king. Okay? Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus or Yeshua or we we say it Joshua. Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not commensurate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So this is a scripture about a true king and a kingdom. How is this Jesus, Messiah, to be the king, the true king of Israel? Well, his name holds a lot of meaning. Adonai saves, Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sins. This is the sort of king that this baby Jesus, born to the Virgin Mary, into an awkward, auspicious beginning of a marriage, um, that this is that king, Jesus. When we conceive of um, being uh, uh, saved, um, saving people from their sins in, in this moment in time, in our sort of tradition, our tradition and history and, and theological place, we often conceive of salvation from sin as this sort of mystical cosmic transaction that happens where God um, uh, uh, removes our indebtedness, our legal standing with God has changed from guilty to unguilty, from unrighteous to righteous, and because of that, we get to go to heaven. Like, that's kind of a bit of the American gospel. But, but that is not how um, uh, I think the Bible holistically conceives of salvation, and certainly not the way the original audience would have understood this hope of salvation from sins. See, the way Israel would have understood their sins, especially through the biblical text, is that their sins were the, in, the, the collected inherited debt of generations that decided not to follow Yahweh as the one true God. And that debt compiled into a kingdom that was broken, that did not function, that was not the realization of the dream of shalom, Jerusalem was not the city of peace, it was the city of war. And so the promised Messiah, this Yahshua, this Jesus, that the angel would proclaim to Joseph that this son would save Israel from its sins. Sure, we would also be, we would in it be reunited with God in this mystical, spiritual way. 
but that his kingdom would be about reversing the order of disorder, of sin. An incarnate God with us, reordering of the world through his very presence in it. God saving us from our sins. Which is why I think in Matthew's gospel, and I think in all of the gospels, the first teaching, certainly the synoptic gospels, the first teaching out of Jesus' mouth is not believe the right thing so that you can go to heaven about your sinfulness and my salvationness. The first thing that Jesus teaches is repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away from your life of sin, your disordered life that doesn't work and turn to the way that does, the reign of God. This is King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, the one true king of Israel coming into the world to restore the kingdom. But the problem with being the true king is that the king represents an existential threat to every other kingdom that claims legitimacy. There can only be one true king, can there not? And so Jesus comes into the world both with great hope but inherently confronting the systems and the kingdoms of the world. This is why we see in Matthew's gospel shortly after this that the king on a throne, the physical king on a throne in Israel, in his response to learning that a promised Messiah had been born, didn't roll out the welcome wagon and say, I can't wait to show you your new digs when you become king. No, that's not what King Herod did, is it? What did he do? He sought to kill every child that conceivably could be this up-and-coming king. The kingdoms of the world are inherently threatened by any king or kingdom that claims legitimacy. And here comes Jesus, the humble baby, claiming legitimacy. King Herod is threatened. And ultimately, the reason why Jesus is crucified is not because people disagreed with his theology. There's lots of people out there with weird theology, but we usually don't kill them. Jesus was killed because he challenged the very foundation of the status quo of the people in power. Jesus challenged the the kingdoms who had pretend power with real power. And it it was such a threat to those establishments. It was it was imperative that it was put out. Jesus challenged the social hierarchy of who was honorable, who was shameful. Jesus deemed all to be beloved, not just the religious pure. Speaking of purity, Jesus 
totally reconstructed who was inside and who was outside the kingdom of God. Jesus dared to demonstrate that a Samaritan, a Roman centurion, could be citizens of God's true kingdom, undermining the very core and power of what those in power thought the true kingdom was. And boy, Jesus was a massive liability to the religious institution, the temple, in the first century. I don't think we can appreciate how scandalous economically it was that Jesus went around forgiving people's sins. That meant you didn't have to go to the temple and pay for the correct animal to be sacrificed to go through the religious institution to receive God's freedom of forgiveness. Here's Jesus of Nazareth out there just forgiving people. But what about the temple? What about all the jobs? What about all the merchants with the animals? What about all the priests? What are they going to do? And these are the people that at the end of the day want Jesus dead because the kingdom of God is a threat to the kingdoms that believe they are in power. But the truth of God, the kingdom of God, is like a weed. It's in the system. They tried to kill Jesus. He didn't stay dead. Praise God. And his kingdom, it, 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 it's, in, it's in the world like a weed. I don't love weeds, especially ragweed. I think I'm severely allergic to them. But what's the gospel, the kingdom, it's like a weed. It's like this idea that you and I are beloved. It's in the world and we can't get rid of it. The idea that you and I are equally created, it's in the world and we can't get rid of it. The kingdom of God will not be overrun. So the question, I think, and you might not see this question immediately in our scripture, but the question I think is this. How will we respond to God's kingdom and authority that's come into the world through Messiah, Jesus? Our scripture this morning shows us two ways we can respond to this new king, the one true king of Israel. The first way we can see in Isaiah 7. Now a little bit of backstory about the passage that Lenny read for us this morning. There's two characters in the story coming from the book of Isaiah. Ahaz, who is the king of the southern kingdom Judah, okay? And Isaiah, the prophet. Well, Isaiah had a revelation from God and he came to, to, to Ahaz and said, God wants to tell you something, a word of hope. And Ahaz says, I don't want to hear about it. And he uses some dumb theological excuse, which was, which was a poor excuse. But essentially, I don't want to hear about it from Yahweh. <clears throat> and Ahaz says this, he's going to tell you anyway. And he tells it. And he shares this revelation of hope. Ahaz, you are sitting on the throne of Judah in the line of David. And you are freaking out because the northern kingdom is teamed up with a kingdom to the north of it the Aramans, A-R-A-M's, I don't know how to, I don't know much about them. Yeah, thanks, Cody. I appreciate you shrugging your shoulders too, right? These two kingdoms are freaking out because there's another kingdom 
the Assyrians in play. And they have all sorts of power and wealth. And those two kingdoms are thinking, if we can get the southern kingdom on our side, the three of us kingdoms might be able to hold off the Assyrians. And so Ahaz is sitting in this, in this political seat, freaking out about his little kingdom, being overrun first by these two kingdoms to the north, but then the bigger kingdom too. And what Isaiah is saying is this, trust, trust God. We do not exist because we're the most powerful nation on earth and have the best army and the best governance. Our only hope has always been Yahweh and what he has done for us and will do for us. So trust him. And as a, as a sign of, of hope, a baby will be born to a young woman, a virgin, and before that baby comes of age, the two kingdoms to the north that you're freaking out about right now will be defeated. And you'll see that Yahweh is the one we should hope in. That's the prophecy. And guess what? It happened in Ahaz's lifetime. A prophecy of hope. But Ahaz, Ahaz was a king who had no desire to submit to Yahweh. When we read in 2 Chronicles 28, Ahaz was a king of opportunity. Ahaz was a king who loved aligning himself with powers that could scratch his back in the moment. And the legacy of Ahaz was incredible idolatry. He aligned himself with a God who required, required of him child sacrifice. He littered the, the, the southern kingdom with shrines and Asherah poles. By the time he died, those who probably were pagan in their worship saw him as so evil so unbecoming that they refused to bury him with the kings of Judah. That is the legacy of Ahaz. And then we have Matthew 1, another way. Joseph, right? God comes to Joseph. We don't know much about Joseph at all, except he's in the lineage of David. And here's Joseph. He seems like a humble good-hearted guy who's just trying to do the right thing. And he's trying to do the right, right thing by the way of his fiancée who is pregnant, but it's not his child. And he could do the right thing and blast her publicly, drag her through the mud, declare her an adulteress. But he's trying to dissolve a marriage that will be ruinous for him, perhaps for her, and not also destroy her life and her family in the meantime. And then, of course, the revelation. And you know, I wonder sometimes when I read this passage, how would I respond if God came to me and an angel and said, by the way, God's doing this thing, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's going to rock your world. Are you in? Joseph says yes. And as, and as difficult as it would be to come into the world with a wife who's bearing somebody else's child, the disgrace of that, it's much harder to come into the world knowing that your son is the Messiah and that people will want him dead. The track record of Messiahs, claimed Messiahs, 
is not very good. If you're hoping for a long life, don't be a Messiah. If you want to die early, be a Messiah. I think this is what Joseph is thinking about primarily when he thinks of his, his innocent little baby boy and his young bride. But in their trust, Joseph and Mary play an important role in God's non-hostile takeover of the false kingdoms of the world and bring restoration ultimately to a dying world through a true kingdom. So friends, we see two paths. King Jesus has entered the room. He's entered the world. The one true king of Israel. And there are two paths we can take. One is the Ahaz path. The Ahaz path is to choose to submit to the authorities of the kingdoms of the world. Essentially short-term success followed by eventual demise. There's a reason. There's a reason why we submit to the kingdoms of the world. They offer us tangible goods and services. A trade for our soul in order we can experience some short-term safety or satisfaction or pleasure, right? Ahaz aligned himself with other kingdoms, other gods, because of the promises that he thought they could provide to him that he thought God might not be able to provide. I'm going to come public and confess that one of my favorite um, shows, my favorite series on Netflix is Narcos. Now, many of you probably haven't watched Narcos, and you probably shouldn't, okay? Maybe I shouldn't. But it's a really well-done show. Narcos is a, um, it's a, it's a really long series now, but, and it started with Pablo Escobar, but it's a series that follows the life, the lives, I should say, of, of narcotic drug lords. How about that? And it is as violent and gratuitous as you would expect. But along with it, it also is deeply humanizing. You get to know the human heart behind all of these, um, these narcos, right? And you're probably wondering, Dave, what's the point of this? In narcos, there's not one single narcos that you look at and you're like, wow, that person has no concept of good or evil. No, they have some semblance of like wanting, some, some semblance of good and bad. But, but what sits in front of every narcos is the opportunity to seize power and wealth and pleasure through violence. A clear path to power, pleasure, and wealth through violence. And 10 out of 10 times, when that path presents itself to these humans, they say, let's do it. And the, and the, and the, and the story of Narcos is a cycle of men and women submitting to the kingdoms of the world in order for ultimately what becomes short-term gain and long-term loss. Now, here's the, this is the thing that blows my mind the most about Narcos. You know at the very beginning of their reign how it's going to end, right? When you watch Godfather, maybe that's more generational, Godfather, 
We all know how it's going to end. When you seek to be a mob boss, you live by the sword. And what does Jesus say? You die by the sword. The kingdom you serve, the way that kingdom reigns will determine your life as well. Will it not? And it it just blows my mind watching Narcos. I'm like, dude, you're going to be rich for 12 years. And then you're going to die a terrible, terrible death. But it's humbling. Because I think, my God, we do the exact same thing. Somehow we think we're smarter than Narcos. But yet we live like Narcos. Different vices, different kingdoms. Most of us don't use violence as our our sort of way to to, to get what we want. But here's what's interesting. Those that killed Jesus, the religious institution, right? This is supposed to be the folks who got the kingdom of God. But an interesting backstory about, about the religious institution at the time. The temple... Uh, uh, the, 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 the temple, the Solomon's temple, had been radically remodeled in the time of Jesus. By the time he was a teenager, decades of, of elaborate um, reconstruction um, and, and, and new infrastructure was built into the temple. And, and I have to imagine that the, the first century um, religious institution, the, the, the Pharisees, the priests, those who had power, the, the religious elite, loved their temple. On paper, God's temple had never been better as an architectural masterpiece than when Jesus walked the earth. By the time he was a teenager, the the scaffolds had been removed and this beautiful building was out in the open for all to see. But here's the thing about the temple. Do you know who paid for it? Herod the Great. Do you know who Herod the Great is? The guy that tried to kill Jesus and slaughtered thousands of children in the meantime. The people who were supposed to, (laughs) the keepers of Torah, the priests, were totally fine cozying up to the kingdoms of the world to get the things that they wanted extracted for the kingdoms they were building. And then when the true king walked into their presence and declared the reign of God, declared the truth of God. They said, kill him. He's not one of us. How sobering is that? We need not be a narcos to be somebody who aligns themselves with the wrong kingdoms. We can be good religious people and align ourselves with the wrong kingdom. That's sobering, friends. It's sobering to me. There's the path of Ahaz with its varying degrees of gratuitousness. We don't need to worship Asherah poles or be a narcos to walk that same path. It could be simple greed. It could be pride. It could be caring more about our exterior appearance and our social standing. Whatever kingdom whatever the kingdoms of the world promised to us. Or there's the path of discipleship. We see Joseph and Mary choosing this path. They choose the authority of the kingdom of God. 
They experience short-term resistance accompanied by the goodness of God's eternal kingdom that they uh, immediately enjoyed as they walked that path as citizens of God. The path of discipleship, the path of, of walking, the path of walking King Messiah's way, the true reign of God, as, as Richard Rohr talks about the kingdom of God, the reign of God is the really real. The revelation and restoration of who we actually are. The organizing truth of all things. The light that overcomes the darkness. The reordering of things to wholeness. And God is this true authority. And discipleship, living the way of Jesus, submitting ourselves to one true God who offers us the way of life, doing the things that Jesus taught us to do, simple obedience. This is the other path. One kingdom, one king, one way that leads to life. Simply discipleship. And what does that path look like? First, repentance. All of us have worshipped the kingdoms of this world. All of us have sacrificed at their altars. All of us have desired the promised gains that they promise. All of us have eaten their fruit and tasted their bitterness. All of us have, have watched our lives fall apart because their promises are false. And so we start with repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The incredible thing about Ahaz is for some reason his son, Hezekiah, this is amazing to me. I don't know how he would know. All he knew was his, king, his dad who was a total deadbeat. But Hezekiah comes in and sees that the fruit of his father's kingdom is a fruit of death. And he repents. And God restores the kingdom. The path of discipleship is a path of repentance. The path of discipleship is a path of resisting the kingdoms that will make our path of discipleship difficult. When we think about the kingdom of God today here in Boulder, I find that there is, and I participate in this, a lot of hand-wringing about the decline of the church Friends, I can tell you from my own experience of being on campus over the last decade that every year less and less students matriculate onto campus as followers of Jesus. But friends, I want to point out with something that I believe to be true. <clears throat> we often look at ourselves at the church and we think, woe is us. What's happening outside in the kingdoms of this world have affected us here in the church, which is why we're shrinking, why things are hard. It's the outside world that's doing it to us. We are the victims of the kingdoms of this world. But friends, I believe this to be true, that no external forces can determine the health 
of God's kingdom. Only those of us that choose to be in the kingdom determine the health of the kingdom. The church rises and falls on one thing. Whether or not, whether or not, we choose to be citizens of God's one true kingdom or citizens of the kingdom of this world. That's it. And when we choose obedience, when we choose to submit to King Jesus in his way, his life, no matter the external circumstances, nothing can stand in its way. That's why it's places like Iran where the kingdom of God is blowing up. You think our external circumstances are hard? So what's happening inside our heart? True discipleship is the only way, friends. And friends, when we face resistance and we believe the lie of the kingdom of pleasure that says, if you're really living life the right way, the true way, then your life, the fruit of your life, will always be joy and pleasure. That is the false promise of our culture here in Boulder. And so when we face resistance, when our life becomes more difficult as Christians, we hear that voice and we think, something must be wrong with my faith. Somehow this is harder, which means it's wrong. And yet James, the brother of John, says this, consider it pure what? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of any kind because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may become mature, complete, pure, lacking nothing. A true citizen of God's kingdom. Knowing the freedom and the wholeness and the love of our King. So shall we not become discouraged by difficult circumstances, but instead understand in joy, just like Joseph and Mary walking into difficult circumstances, that the Lord would use those circumstances to refine them in a beautiful way as God's kingdom came into the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we worship you. We thank you. We pray that you would align our hearts, help us to understand and see where it is that our hearts have allegiance to kings other than you. May we be humble like Hezekiah to repent. Lord, restore us. May we know the joy of the freedom that comes with living in your kingdom. And may we know the joy of living a life marked with the resistance of the kingdoms that are threatened by our simple obedience to you as your disciples. May that be our legacy here in Boulder. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.